to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, my friends, it's all about politics. It's all about politics. Let's take a look at some of the stories of this week. It's really amazing. No matter how diverse the stories are, that all comes back to politics. Hmm. The confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett in Washington and the dirty tricks that the Democrats are planning to use to prevent her appointment. They're already bragging about it. It's not about the Supreme Court. It's politics and the ongoing riots in Portland, Oregon. They're not about race or social justice. All that burning and looting, it's all about politics. The president's coronavirus, his recovery and his tweets, the riots in Brooklyn and Cuomo's targeting the Orthodox Jewish community there, the charges against the Proud Boys who stood up to be counted. And if you haven't heard, you may be surprised at what they said and what they did. I just had a conversation, a brief conversation, with a close relative of mine who told me that she didn't want to talk to me anymore because she feels so strongly about her political beliefs, her liberal political beliefs, and about mine, that she just couldn't talk to me anymore. And maybe she'd talk to me again in four weeks after the election. I wonder how she'll feel about talking to me at all if the election results don't come out the way she wants them. I want you to know I was in shock because for somebody who is a relative, a close relative and a friend to say, I don't want to talk to you anymore, that's just unbelievable to me. But maybe you have gone through that as well. You know, if you have a story that you'd like to share, about this sort of thing, I sure would like to hear it. Send me a tweet, at Friedman Report, and let me know what you think. Like I said, it's all about politics. There's a sickness in America now. It's a sickness that doesn't allow the left to talk to the right. And I don't understand it at all. It's so un-American. It's so antithetical to what we are, who we are, and what we have developed over the last 240 years. We've had our differences. Heck, we've had a civil war. But I don't remember ever a time in my lifetime when we couldn't talk to each other, when we couldn't communicate. Even if it meant avoiding certain subjects just to keep the peace, it wasn't that we couldn't talk to each other at all. But that's where we are now. And that's exactly what happened with her. And I guess it's going on a lot. This is a crazy time we live in. A perfect storm, as I have said before, of some very weird things going on. And it's all about politics. And that's what we're going to talk about today, about all of the politics that are running our lives that has infected everything we do. So let's begin with the first day of confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination to the Supreme Court. She appeared before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday, 
honestly, it wasn't a hearing that we should be very proud of. In fact, in my opinion, I think we should be ashamed because the Democrats came fully armed with accusations and forecasts of exactly how Judge Barrett would rule on the Supreme Court, particularly, and this is what they concentrated on, Roe v. Wade and on Obamacare. Virtually every Democrat had posted large photographs of children with serious diseases and assured their colleagues that Judge Barrett would find against Obamacare and by destroying it would take away the protections for these poor children with their pre-existing conditions that Obamacare provides for and implying that if Judge Barrett is appointed, they will lose their medical coverage. They will lose their health care. That's a long stretch, but that was their argument. Many of the Democrats also said that Judge Barrett would also find against Roe v. Wade and deprive American women of what they called women's health care, meaning, of course, abortion. In her introductory remarks, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California said this. She was referring to the examination that they planned to put Judge Barrett through when she said, quote, we will examine the consequences, unquote, of Barrett's potential rulings. And she added, the president has promised to appoint justices who will vote to dismantle that law. This could well mean that if Judge Barrett is confirmed, Americans stand to lose the benefits that the Affordable Care Act provides. More than 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions could be denied coverage or charged more to obtain health insurance, unquote. You know, it, it tickles me when I hear people use that number, 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions, that they could be denied coverage. But you know, the thing is <laughs> that, that of those 130 million people with pre-existing conditions, most of them never have been on Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Only, I think, a total of 20-some-odd million people in the entire country were ever on the Affordable Care Act. So we're talking apples and oranges here, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But Feinstein set the tone for virtually every other Democrat who made an opening statement. It was a recurring theme throughout the opening day. Lindsey Graham, who was committee chair, quoted the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom Judge Barrett will be replacing if she's confirmed. Justice Ginsburg said that, quote, the president serves for four years, not three, unquote. And that there's nothing unconstitutional about a president making a Supreme Court appointment in his fourth year in office. But then there was the Vermont Senator, Patrick Leahy, who said that this appointment could set women's rights back for decades to a time, he said, when women had no right to control their own bodies. And then he stretched his prophecy to include Barrett being a threat to equal protection for women under the law, including voting rights and the rights of the LBGTQ community. He said, quote, these aren't just thoughts. 
These are real-life implications of the decisions made by the court, unquote. Except they're not. They're not real-life implications at all because he's suggesting that he knows how she will find on the court. And of course, he doesn't even begin to fathom the legal issues that a Justice Barrett would consider in dealing with any of these issues. And then California Senator Kamala Harris, who was also the Democrats' nominee for vice president, she had her say. After she chastised the Senate committee for holding the hearings in the first place, she said Republicans were trying to confirm Judge Barrett, quote, in time to ensure that they can strip away the protections in the Affordable Care Act, unquote. As I said before, the entire Democrat presentation was scripted so that the message was repeated over and over again. And by the way, Judge Barrett has already said quite clearly that her legal philosophy is based on a strict interpretation of the Constitution as it was written, and that personal considerations or religious beliefs have no place in a judge's analysis of the law. To put it simply, the entire presentation made by the Democrats was coordinated to present essentially the same message and totally ignored any of Judge Barrett's previous statements. And the message was that the president had nominated Judge Barrett to torpedo the Affordable Care Act because that case is coming before the court, the Supreme Court, just one week after the November elections. There was one more senator, Dick Durbin from Illinois, and he raised another issue which I referred to myself on last week's program, and that is that the president wants to ensure that if the election results are contested, there will be nine justices sitting on the Supreme Court to ensure that a hung jury will not occur. With Ruth Bader Ginsburg's chair on the court empty, there are only eight judges, an even number. And so a hung jury is possible, four on one side, four on the other side of any decision. Durbin also suggested that the court would, in that case, rule in Trump's favor if Judge Barrett is confirmed. Well, here he is again doing what the Democrats have been doing, which is to assume that they know how Judge Barrett will find on any particular case, which I seriously doubt. I don't think they have any clue of how she would find in any particular case. Between us, I think having nine justices on the court, if the presidential race should be contested, I think that's a pretty darn good idea. One highlight of that first day of hearings was provided by Senator Ben Sass. He's a Republican from Nebraska, and he gave a lecture on the difference between civics and politics. And he defined the term court packing and why that is not the same thing as nominating a single judge to fill an empty seat on the Supreme Court. He made that point because Senator Chuck Schumer had earlier suggested that by nominating Judge Barrett, President Trump was already trying to, quote, pack the court, unquote. Sass made it quite clear that Schumer was wrong, and so is court packing. 
which would essentially add an unknown number of additional justices to the court and make the Supreme Court just one more politically motivated body. And it would do more than that. It would destroy the entire system of checks and balances in the federal government. He called it a partisan suicide bomb. There was also another subtext throughout the first day, and it came up every once in a while. Lurking underneath all of this Democrat repetition about ACA and Roe versus Wade, there was a memory of something Diane Feinstein said to Judge Barrett during her confirmation hearing for the Seventh Circuit Court three years ago. Feinstein said that she was concerned that, quote, the dogma lives loudly within you, unquote. She said that to Judge Barrett, and she was referring to her Catholic faith. Her comment was an affront, and it was in a violation of the Constitution, which forbids any religious test for federal office. Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri blasted the Democrats for making Judge Barrett's religious beliefs any kind of an issue in this hearing. He said, quote, this freedom of conscience and religious liberty undergirds all of our other rights because it tells the government that it cannot tell us what to think or who we can assemble with or how we can worship. This bedrock principle of American liberty is now under attack. That is what is at stake when my Democratic colleagues repeatedly questioned Judge Barrett and others about their religious beliefs, unquote. As I watched the hearings, I saw an irony in the way that the Democrats, who profess oh so loudly their support of women's rights and for equality and justice for women, now attack one of the most admired women judges in the country and are doing everything they can to tear her down. But then... Judge Barrett had her moment of uninterrupted attention, and when she spoke, she was as impressive as those who introduced her said she was. And she had an answer to the Democrats who were predicting how Judge Barrett's decisions would be influenced by her conservative convictions and her religious beliefs. She told the committee that it was not the duty of the court to, quote, solve every problem or right every wrong. She said the policy decisions and value judgments of government must be made by the political branches elected by and accountable to the people. The public should not expect courts to do so, and courts should not try. Unquote. I'll be talking more about the hearings later in the show, but for now, let me just say that in my opinion, the Democrats have acted and are continuing to act shamefully. And in the process, they are trying to destroy the professional life of a brilliant legal mind whose presence on the Supreme Court would be an asset to the court and to the country. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about relative to the first day of the hearings. The whole point of these hearings is to, hopefully, confirm Judge Barrett to the Supreme Court. But the Democrats don't want to do that. And Chuck Schumer has made it very clear that they will do whatever is necessary to prevent that, including, and this is the dirty trick that 
I talked about at the beginning of this program. The dirty trick is that he will do everything he can to make sure that there isn't a quorum so that the committee can take a vote and send the confirmation to the Senate for a full vote. We all know that Republicans have a majority in the Senate, and therefore they have a majority on this committee. And there are ways of getting around not having a quorum. But the fact that he is even considering it, and not only considering it, boasting about it, that this is what they plan to do, it's shameful, and it is another reflection, a bad reflection, on the Democrat Party and the dirty tricks they're willing to play in order to get their way. Now, after the break, we're going to talk about the new riots that have broken out around the country and what they mean and how they may have changed the playing field just a little bit. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now, before I get back to the confirmation hearings, and we'll talk about that shortly, let's talk about some of the things that are going on in the rest of the country. Let's take a look at some of the cities. They're not getting any better. Take Portland, Oregon, for example. On Sunday, the day before what we used to call Columbus Day, but now the politically correct call Indigenous Peoples Day, the Antifa mob declared an Indigenous Peoples Day of Rage. It was supposedly Christopher Columbus they were after. Oh, they were angry, and they wanted to let the world know. Now, Christopher Columbus is credited with proving that the world was not flat, as most people believed it was in the 15th century, and he discovered the islands of the Caribbean on the doorstep of the Americas. 
And that's what he's remembered for, and that's why he has had for years and years a day of his own, which was picked for the day that he discovered America on October 12, 1492. But like many of our historical heroes, he had a dark side. During the years that he stayed in the New World, he showed a cruelty that we would never forgive today. When he arrived in the Caribbean, he found the island of what he called Hispaniola. That is probably what is now known as the Dominican Republic and Haiti. He called the people he found there Indians. But instead of befriending them and learning from them about this new world, he enslaved them and he forced them to work for the profit of the Europeans. He also sent thousands of peaceful people from Hispaniola to Spain, and many of them died on the long voyage across the Atlantic. In addition to treating the indigenous people with extraordinary cruelty, Columbus and his men also brought diseases to the islands, diseases such as smallpox, measles, and even the common cold. The people had no immunity to these diseases, and it was like the plague had descended upon the islands. Thousands were killed. In fact, it's estimated that when Columbus first came to the islands, there may have been as many as a quarter of a million native people living there. But the combination of the deportation of thousands of people as slaves sent to Europe in chains and the death of people from disease and hardship was so bad that by 1517, only 25 years later, only about 14,000 were left. This is an ugly side of our history that most of us don't know very much about, and it is far from the only story of cruelty and inhumanity that peppers our national history. I would venture to guess, though, that there is no place on earth where man's history does not have some kind of sordid and appalling chapters that shame the generations that follow. And as I have said many times before on this show, it is that history that we learn from, and that makes the succeeding generations better and kinder if they are willing to learn from their history. But today's upcoming generation is unforgiving. They don't want to learn from history. They don't want to learn history altogether. They want to destroy it. They want to feed on their rage and use it to destroy things that they hold responsible for crimes that were committed centuries ago. There is no kindness in their actions. They are driven to destroy the irony in Antifa's indigenous day of rage is that the statues they decided to destroy had nothing to do with Christopher Columbus. They were the statues of Abraham Lincoln, who never owned slaves, and in fact, when he was president, he freed the slaves. And they also brought down a statue of Teddy Roosevelt, who had nothing to do with either Columbus or slavery, and who was the 26th president, and at the age of 42, he was, by the way, the youngest president in American history. 
One of the many problems with the thugs in Antifa is that they are uneducated. They claim to be fighting against fascism, colonialism, and social injustice, but they are just as ready to pull down a statue of abolitionist John Brown or Abraham Lincoln as one of General Robert E. Lee. They simply don't care. It's destruction for destruction's sake. And if, by the way, someone gets hurt in the process, oh well. So on Sunday, they not only destroyed the statues of Lincoln and Roosevelt using chains and blocks and and a blowtorch, but they also smashed the windows of the Oregon Historical Society and the Museum of Art, and they vandalized the Portland State University campus public safety offices. Finally, the Portland Police Bureau declared a riot and put an end to the destruction, at least for Sunday. The riots in Portland have been going on for over a year. They started off as street demonstrations with a lot of shouting and fighting and four-letter words that you don't want your children to hear. And then it escalated into something much worse. It was at one of these so-called demonstrations in June 2019 that journalist Andy No was beaten by an Antifa mob and ended up in the hospital with a brain injury. He's thankfully back on his beat and continuing to report on the growing dysfunction in Portland, and his attackers have never been caught. The interesting thing about Portland is that the people who live there don't seem to think it's so bad. Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, is a piece of work. During the news conference on Monday with police and community leaders at his side, Wheeler condemned the violence, the vandalism, and the destruction of the night before. But he still has not called on the National Guard or asked the president to do that in order to end the violence. In June, Portland City Council passed a budget that took $15 million away from the police bureau and eliminated 84 police jobs. And Mayor Wheeler supports that. And he has pledged to decrease the funding to the Portland Police Bureau by some $5 million each year for the next two years, and to reallocating $12 million in funds from the Police Bureau to support communities of color and to implement reforms. He says, I'm so proud that my administration has done more to demand and implement reforms than any past mayor. We've started an unarmed response unit created the Portland Committee on Community-Engaged Policing expanded behavioral health capacity and mandated bias and de-escalation training, unquote. Is he kidding? Expanded behavioral health capacity? An unarmed response unit to riots where they're setting fire to buildings? But wait, there's more. He's up for re-election next month. And his opponent is a woman by the name of Sarah Ayanarone. In January 2019, she tweeted this, quote, To those who say Antifa are violent thugs, I'm not a violent thug, and I am Antifa. I am Antifa because the red hats are coming after the brown and black people 
after Jews, after queer and trans people, and more. They're coming after our democracy, unquote. Well, we all know who the Red Hats are. It's us. So here she is, running for mayor of Portland, and she has a campaign sticker that says, Everyday Anti-Fascist, always. And here's the kicker. She's running against Wheeler, and she's ahead in the polls. What is wrong with the people in Portland? You can't make this stuff up. So let's move on now to New York. The governor just came out with a new book. It's called, quote, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic, unquote, by Governor Andrew Cuomo. And guess what it's all about? It's all about him and what a swell job he did dealing with the coronavirus, the China virus. We all know that he sent infected people back into senior nursing homes and that as a result, he may have killed as many as 11,000 people. He could have sent them to the hospital ship that President Trump sent to New York Harbor with 1,200 beds for patients just like these. Or he could have sent them to the Javits Center, where 2,500 beds were waiting empty. But he didn't. He told them that they couldn't go there. He sent them back to the nursing homes, where the most vulnerable people were there and had no way to escape. And then... He blamed the president for everything that went wrong. The president, who sent him thousands of ventilators that he demanded and then later sent to other states, and millions of PPE. And then Cuomo shut down New York State completely and gave a daily press conference to let everyone know how wonderful he was. And, by the way, he denied knowing anything about the executive order that he signed ordering the infected patients back into the nursing homes. And he thinks he did a great job, and he's an example of leadership, and he's bragging about it in his new book. Personally, I think he should go to prison. That's where murderers are supposed to go. But guess what? He's not going to prison. In fact, (laughs) here's the kicker. It's rumored that Joe Biden is considering naming Andrew Cuomo as his attorney general. You just can't make this stuff up. And by the way, speaking of Joe Biden, there's a deepening issue here. As the election gets closer, and we've gotten down to talking about days now instead of weeks or months, Joe seems to be failing more and more. On Monday, Biden was talking about Mitt Romney, but he apparently couldn't remember his name and he called him, you know, the Mormon. He also couldn't remember what state he was in. And he even, once again, couldn't remember what office he was actually running for. He said, quote, I'm a proud Democrat running for the Senate, unquote. He also said, Ohio and Florida are two critically important states that are very close, that um, Trump won significantly the last two times, 
unquote. The last two times, Trump only ran for office once in his life. And then Joe Biden told his audience to go to a website that doesn't exist. You know, I'm thinking about my relative who won't talk to me. <laughs> I wonder I wonder if she is more worried than angry. Does she see that her candidate is failing? Is she afraid of what her party is doing in the face of the disaster in the streets and the disaster of the virus and how that will all affect the election results? If she believes the polls, then maybe she's okay. But if there's a glimmer of doubt that the polls may be wrong or that they're too close for comfort, then maybe she really is dreading the election and the results that they will bring. I think she's typical of the liberal left who don't want to do the research. They just want to believe. They don't need to know the facts. They need to believe in a hero. I remember how certain she was just a year ago that Joe Biden was her candidate. That was back when there were 27 of them. And she really believed in him. But does she see what we see? That he is a failing old man who will never be able to handle the stresses and make the hard decisions that are required in the Oval Office. Joe Biden is not a laughing matter. His story is sad and getting sadder every day because it certainly looks like he is being used by the Democrat machine to get them back into the White House at all costs. And when you consider how many candidates there were at the beginning of this race, it's even more amazing that he, Joe Biden, was the last man standing. It makes me wonder what is really behind the curtain. Was Joe Biden chosen because he could be managed, because he would do what they told him to do, and then when they were done with him, they could retire him quickly and let his vice president, someone who could also be managed, take his place when they put him out to pasture? That's a very cynical picture. But I'm not sure that the people behind the Democrat Party aren't a lot more cynical than I am. And here's another thing. When the president announced that he had tested positive for the China virus, we all had a moment of shock because suddenly we were face to face with the possibility that our president was vulnerable to this virus, just like everyone else, that he is not invincible. For those who support him, the shock was very personal. He is the symbol of strength who carries the banner for our view of what America should be, free and a beacon for the world. In his short time in the White House, he has become a fixture in our lives. He is the builder of walls they say could never be built. He is the maker of impossible peace deals between people who were enemies for generations. He is our bulwark against our enemies and the builder of an economy that is greater than any this country has ever had. But as we watched him get on the helicopter, we wondered if he would come back. We knew that even he was vulnerable and that we could lose him. The liberals, what did they think and feel? Well, 
I really don't know what the liberals thought. Maybe they cheered. How ugly is that? Or maybe they just wanted him to retire into Trump Tower and go away. But then, as quickly as he disappeared, he was back. Strong, apparently healthy, and doing what he always did. Tweeting, rallying, and leading his supporters with energy. A picture of strength. And this small moment in our history has given us pause. It has shown us how much we have to lose and how truly important this election year is. The choice is clear, and it is up to us to show up and cast our vote for America. Not for socialism, not for tyranny, not for chaos, but for America. Now, after the break, we're going to come back and talk some more about the hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. The second day was even more interesting than the first, so stay tuned. I'll be right back. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com slash sleep. confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. On day one, the Democrat members of the Senate Judiciary Committee alternated with the Republicans to make their opening statements. The Republicans talked about the Constitution, the importance of the Supreme Court, and the qualifications of the candidate. They each had a different take, a different point of reference, a different point of view, and the sum of their comments had a kind of power because it was clear that they really believed that they had an amazing candidate before them and they were ready to go to the mat for her. The Democrats were different. It sounded as if their scripts had all been coordinated and choreographed. Although there were many issues that they could have been talking about, they all talked about the same things, Obamacare and Roe v. Wade. And they all said pretty much the same thing, that they were convinced that President Trump had nominated her because she is a conservative and her role would be to help end Obamacare and overturn Roe v. Wade. The most important point seemed to be the same one for all of them. The potential loss of insurance coverage for pre-existing conditions if Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act would be ended by the Supreme Court. Some of the senators were polite. Some were aggressive, and some were even rude. Throughout it all, though, Judge Amy Coney Barrett sat still, she listened, and she answered questions without hesitating, sometimes very complicated questions, or references to obscure cases. 
She knew it all, and she came up with her answers without hesitation. At the end of the day, it was her turn to make an opening statement, and she made it with a kind of personal calm that was at the same time commanding and respectful. On day one, she made her mark. So I was eager to see what would happen on day two. Would the Democrats be as aggressive as they were with Justice Brett Kavanaugh? Would they pull something out of the hat that would turn this hearing into another circus? Well, the second day was not at all what I expected. In the first place, the Democrats were astonishingly polite. Well, most of them were. Diane Feinstein was a pleasant surprise. She began by complimenting Judge Barrett on her beautiful family. Her husband and all her seven children were sitting behind her, as were her six sisters and brothers. Senator Feinstein asked if she would introduce them, and she did, every one of them. When, when Senator Feinstein asked her questions, even pointed questions on difficult subjects, she was still polite. It was refreshing. Remember, she was the one who told Judge Barrett in 2017 that, quote, the dogma speaks loudly in you, unquote. That was in reference to Judge Barrett's Catholicism. Nothing like that happened on Tuesday. Feinstein was frustrated by Barrett's unwillingness to share an opinion on any point of law or case that might appear either in her court in the 7th District or in the Supreme Court should she be confirmed. This is a standard that Ruth Ginsburg immortalized, and it's actually called the Ginsburg Rule. Judge Barrett referred to it several times. But Feinstein was only the first of many Democrats on the committee who tried to get Judge Barrett to share her opinion on anything remotely related to the Affordable Care Act, Roe v. Wade, or even the Second Amendment. Barrett was always calm, always polite, always professional, and always consistent. She did not give in. The Democrats continued to push on the fears that they said their constituents felt that they might lose their protections under the ACA if the Supreme Court should strike the law down in the next session. Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey, he said, all I'm asking is, can you empathize with that? Senator, she responded, I would certainly empathize with people who are struggling. And she told a story about going to Haiti to pick up their daughter, Vivian, from an orphanage there, and how she was struck by the lack of so many basic things like antibiotics. She said, quote, It made me appreciate the fact that we have access to health care, so I could certainly empathize with all of that. Unquote. Senator Kamala Harris pushed even harder. You remember her. She's running for vice president. She objected to Judge Barrett's referring to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's rule and refusing to reveal how she might vote on any particular case. Harris said that Ginsburg was, quote, far more forthcoming at her hearing about the essential rights of women, unquote. But Barrett answered her without any hesitation and refused to answer any questions that might relate to a future case in her court. She said, quote, Justice Ginsburg, with her characteristic pithiness, used this to describe how a nominee should comport herself at a hearing. No hints, no previews, no forecasts. 
That has been the practice of nominees before her. But everybody calls it the Ginsburg rule because she stated it so concisely, and it's been the practice of every nominee since. Unquote. No hints, no previews, no forecasts. Concise and to the point. The Democrats kept asking, though, about how she would rule in cases about same-sex marriage, abortion, the ACA, the Second Amendment. And Judge Barrett's answer was always the same. The Democrats continued to put out large photographs of sick children to make their point about the ACA. But Judge Barrett would still not say how she might vote on the ACA when it comes up to the court on November 10th. The important thing was that she told the panel that she would approach the ACA and everything else without any agenda, and she would view the case, whatever it is, apply the law, and adhere to the rule of law. And that's exactly the answer that she should have given, because it's inappropriate for a candidate for the Supreme Court to use her hearing to explain how she might vote in any particular case. That would be totally inappropriate. There was a lot of discussion on day two of various cases, and some of it got quite legalistic. But it was really quite amazing how much information Judge Barrett seems to have on the tip of her, at the tip of her fingers, no matter what the case or the question. Throughout the hearing, that lasted until late in the day on Tuesday, Judge Barrett answered calmly and politely with grace and authority. She never seemed to get tired. The day was long, but Judge Barrett looked as though nothing could ever upset her personal calm. No matter what the Democrats threw at her, she never lost her dignity. One of the interesting exchanges happened early on on Tuesday between Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, who did what no one else had done so far. He asked Judge Barrett questions about legal process, which she answered with authority. It was a wonderful example of how these hearings are supposed to go and probably did go once before they became a forum for a political circus. There was another bright spot as the day began to wind down when Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas, asked Judge Barrett this. He said, you know, most of us have multiple notebooks and notes and books and things like that in front of us. Can you hold up what you've been referring to and answering our questions? And Judge Barrett showed the real depth of her judicial knowledge when, after sitting through some 11 grueling hours of questions from friends and foes alike, she held up what was on her desk. It was a blank notepad. There was nothing written on it except a letterhead that said U.S. Senate. She had gone through the entire day answering all types of questions, including references to obscure cases, conversations, and legal opinions, without a single reference book or cheat sheet to refer to. She was clearly well-prepared and well-informed, but the preparation for her family, that was more difficult. 
I was disturbed to hear that as Judge Barrett and her husband were preparing their family for the hearing, they felt it was necessary to warn their children that the hearings could get nasty and that people could say some terrible things about their mom. That must have been hard to hear. It must have been hard to tell them. Still, the kids were astonishingly well-behaved throughout the endless questioning and throughout what must have been, at best, terribly boring for them, particularly the younger ones. The hearing is really the big story of the week, and it will be interesting how it will progress for the balance of the week. Senator Chuck Schumer has threatened to withhold a quorum so that a vote cannot be taken. It's a terribly spiteful thing to do, like a spoiled child who doesn't get his way and ruins things for everybody else. He won't succeed, though, despite his worst efforts, because it is possible to release the nomination to the entire Senate without a vote. And there is a Republican majority in the Senate, so... All in all, so far in the process at least, it seems that the Democrats have been completely outmatched by the apparently unflappable Judge Barrett, who answers all their questions without so much as a pause for breath, and who retains her composure with grace and dignity despite the indignity of some of their questions. So unless the Democrats devise some other plan to stall the confirmation, it seems likely that Judge Barrett will be confirmed soon. And when that happens, it will be good for the Supreme Court and good for America. She'll be an excellent addition, and I, for one, will be glad to see her on the court. Now, I promised to tell you a story about the Proud Boys. Who are the Proud Boys? They are a little understood group of patriots who have been called everything from far-right neo-fascists to gang-like extremists to dangerous white supremacists and a lot more. The Proud Boys are not really any of these. They're not well understood and they're easily misunderstood. They're a rough-and-tumble group who call themselves a fraternity of men who revel in their maleness, and who support Donald Trump. They are a right-wing political group who believe in Western ideals, Western culture, and Western values, and they call themselves Western chauvinists. But they've been labeled white supremacists, and they're trying to break that stereotype. This week, They smashed their so-called connection with white supremacists when the Proud Boys of Utah teamed up with the Northern Utah chapter of Black Lives Matter to denounce white supremacy together. The leader of the Proud Boys Utah chapter told the press this. He said, I will go out and say that the Proud Boys as a whole, and I'll say this on behalf of the entire national organization, Denounce white supremacy. We are in no way, shape, or form white supremacists. We have a vetting system that gets those people out of our hair. We do not have anything to do with white supremacy. We do not have anything to do with the Ku Klux Klan 
we denounce those organizations, unquote. Another local leader said, I don't care what color your skin is. We're all Americans, and we need to find a way to come together instead of divide, unquote. And the local leader of the Northern Utah chapter of Black Lives Matter, Jakari Kelly, she said, we do need to be able to reach across the aisle and have these tough conversations. And so they did. Now, when the president told the proud boys to stand back, stand by at one of his rallies, he hardly knew anything about the group, but he was trying to defuse the situation in Portland and it worked. Now, those of you who have been listening to this show on and off will know that I am not a great fan of Black Lives Matter for a variety of reasons. But in this case, the coming together of Black Lives Matter and Proud Boys was a good thing. And maybe we should be seeing more of that. Maybe it will help. This new world that we live in creates strange bedfellows. But far better to be that than to be at each other's throats and destroy lives and communities. Now, there's one more story that I'd like to tell you that is really very disturbing. There are new riots in Brooklyn, but these riots are different. They are in the Orthodox Jewish neighborhoods, and they are protesting the draconian restrictions that have been placed on the community by our old friend, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who was very clear about his targets. He said, Orthodox Jewish gatherings are often very, very large. Mass gatherings are the super spreader events. We know there have been mass gatherings going on in concert with religious institutions in these communities for weeks. I'm talking about you're only supposed to have 50 outdoors, but they had a thousand and you don't see masks and you see clear violation of social distancing. Well, in theory, this makes some sense, except there are no restrictions on the mass gatherings of Black Lives Matter demonstrations that have been going on in New York for months. And hundreds of people show up to these demonstrations with very few masks and no social distancing. But it gets worse because in his effort to clamp down on the Jewish community, Cuomo posted a photograph on Twitter of a large Jewish crowd with hundreds of people. He wrote, quote, These are pictures from the past couple of weeks, and these are just emblematic. You've all seen pictures like this for weeks. What did you think was going to happen? Unquote. Only the photograph in question was taken 12 years ago, long before we ever heard of COVID-19. Cuomo is a fraud and a liar. He's a political hack whose ego is far bigger than the value that he brings to the state of New York. And now he has it in for the Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn. Shame, Governor Cuomo. Well, we have come to the end of another hour, my friends, and I want to thank you for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week a healthy week, a safe week. And I look forward to seeing you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been 
The Friedman Report. 